One of the most uh, encouraging phrases ever is this one. Uh, you're going to need more room. You're going to need more room. Very, very encouraging. One of the first times you hear this is the first time pregnancy comes into your life. One of the first thoughts that will occur to you is, we're going to need more room. Maybe when babies showed up, you were living in a little apartment. Maybe you were still students. You realized, this bachelor pad is not exactly going to work. We're going to need more room. And then as four months gave way to six months, if you were the female partner in the relationship, you began thinking about your pants, we're going to need more room. I remember despairing as I heard about husbands gaining empathy weight. And it happened to me, I must admit it. Mostly because, you know, you tend to eat whatever she's eating. And if you've been pregnant, you know that your appetite, of course, is used to help gestate that young thing. And so there are times when you're pregnant that you are eating everything in sight. And as a good, good husband, you want to, you know, be a good partner to your wife. And so you do the same thing. And you have to let your belt buckle out a couple notches because you're going to need more room. You find you have more room in your wallet because all the money you used to have begins to disappear as you buy things like child safety seats and strollers. Were you stupid like us with your first baby? Did you buy that like $400 stroller from Sears? I mean, I know Sears is no longer, but in my day, people used to go to Sears and go crazy. I hear that there are some people still who have like a registry when they have a baby. I thought wedding registries were crazy. Yes, we did it at the Bay back in the day, but like a baby registry is really taking it to the next level. So all your friends and family are also going to find a little room in their wallet. You're going to need more room. <clears throat> Maybe you've never been pregnant with a child, but you've been pregnant with potential. Remember those moments in your business when you realized, we have to expand, we're going to need more room. That's one of the nicest moments in business, is it not? You're like, our sales are up. We need more warehousing room, right? We need more room in our bank account. Where are we going to put all this money? We're going to need more room. Maybe you've noticed this with your talent. God gave you a talent. You have a special ability, right? God put you on the earth for a reason. You're not an accident. And maybe you remember when your talent began to kind of show up in full flesh. Do you remember that moment? You realize that God was beginning to give you favor and a little bit of ability to serve him, and you thought, hmm, I'm going to need a little more room for my talent. A little more room for my calling. This enterprise is going to need a little more room. I was thrilled a few months ago when Pastor Brian told me, we're going to need more room in the parking lot. And so when we added 21 spots, I celebrated every single one of those spots. As representative of a car with three or four people and it coming to taste and see that the Lord is good, we're going to need more room. Funny, my third week here at Grace, I've been here two years, my third week at Grace, a lady I'd never met before in my life came up to me after the service and said, so I have one question. I said, yeah, what is that? When are we going to move a wall? <laughs> and I said, I admire your faith. We're going to need more room. I think we would all agree that in general terms, more is better than less. Now, I know there are exceptions. Less waistline is better than more, but we all like more steak than less. In general terms, more is better than less. Bigger is better than smaller. Again, in general terms. It's better to drive your four babies in a minivan than in a 
Well, you can't even drive them in a sedan. More is better than less. Bigger is better than smaller. This is especially if you've ever known lack or want, if you've ever suffered scarcity or despair. As I worked this through, it occurred to me that minimalism might just be an affectation of the privileged elite. This whole movement towards minimalism, less is more, we want these chic, spare spaces in our houses. And look, I understand that, I appreciate that. My wife and I are always purging, trying to get rid of stuff. But I thought on it, I was like, minimalism is an affectation of the privileged elite, because I remember my grandparents. They were not minimalists. They kept everything. I mean everything. I still have my grandfather's tools and my wife's grandfather's tools in my garage. And not only do I have their tools, I have jars with their nails that they kept from 1950. Right? Have you gone into your grandparents' house? Going to their attic? They keep everything. Why do they keep everything? Because the grandparents of my generation survived what? The war and the Depression. The Depression before the war and then the war. Right? They survived that era in Western history. They know what devastation means. So they were constantly very completely excited and driven indeed by the prospect of more. Now, we don't have to go too far into the social history of what happened to our parents, the boomers, as a result of being raised by my grandparents, right? The greatest generation and the excesses of the boomer generation and the reaction of Generation X and now of the millennials to the way our parents took the legacy of their parents. So we don't need to go into that. This is church, not a sociology course after all. I think it's very true that when you have everything you've ever dreamed of and there's not one speck of lack in your life, it is very hard for you to think on the abundance that is promised to us in Jesus with much excitement or exuberance. Because if you don't need anything, it stands to reason that you don't really need Jesus. This is one of the reasons that Christianity thrives in places where suffering is real, where lack is real, where privation is real. This is why Christianity tends to stagnate in places where prosperity is real, where plenty is the norm, where superabundance is an everyday kind of thing. Don't believe me, drive by the parking lot at Costco on a Sunday afternoon. Tell me whose lot is fuller, ours or theirs. It wasn't always that way. So if you have everything, you're not going to be excited by today's sermon. If you have no sense of need, this is not going to turn you on. But if you've ever been broken, never been oppressed, if you have ever suffered loss, and I know that restoration and reparation is going to sound great to you. If that's you today, then Isaiah 49 is going to sound like a victory song to you. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Yisrael, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. 
And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, hear this church, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of living water will guide them, and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinai. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, Ooh, your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From whence have these come? Thus says the Lord, Behold, I got to stand up. I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons into their bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Somebody said amen. I am not going to be exceedingly quiet today. Isaiah 49. It's so good I don't even know where to start. Here's the first bit of good news. God is sending a Savior. Okay, we see this in verses 1 through 3. 
Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I shall be glorified. Now, historically here, Isaiah, I told you off the top, is kind of confused as a prophet, right? He's writing here kind of like a cosmic poem. And so he jumps around. One moment he's prophesying, speaking as if he's the Lord, and the next moment he's responding as if he's the people of God. Here he's Cyrus for a minute, and then it goes back to Israel. So you have to work your way through it carefully. So historically speaking, off the top here in verses 1 through 3, this is Cyrus. Okay, God is calling Cyrus, the king of Persia, to be his instrument of redemption, to set his people free from their long captivity in Babylon. So that's who this is off the top. But very quickly, we realize that cosmologically, theologically here, this is, of course, Jesus. How do we know? Look at verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Excuse me while I clear my throat uh, 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 and go to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Nobody but the sub 40-year-olds got that reference, and nobody over the age of 24 got it either. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on white horses. From his mouth, verse 15, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, house building, traveling healer, winemaking, kid friendly rabbi that Jesus was in his incarnation, in his return, he's faithful and true, sword from his mouth, iron rod wielding, blood dripped robe wearing, tatted up Jesus, who in righteousness judges and makes war. Okay, I love that Jesus. I love the picture of tatted up Jesus. His name tattooed on his thigh. A sword coming from his mouth. A rod of iron in his hand. He's got a robe dressed in blood, meaning he's already been at work. And the armies of his kingdom are wearing right robes. They're so secure in the fact that God himself will secure the victory that they, don't know, they know they're not even going to have to fight. Right? Why would you go to war in a white robe if you knew you had to fight? You can't run very well. It's like a dress. I'm like, how am I going to kill people in a dress, right? No. We don't have to fight. God himself is going to do it. I love this picture. This is mighty Jesus. This is King Jesus. Now look, I understand that I'm preaching in Guelph. So before you go all peacenik on me, remember, warrior Jesus is only bad news for his enemies. Right? Very important point. Warrior Jesus is only bad news for his enemies. And he's righteous. You know what that means to be righteous? It means he always does the right thing. Thing In any given situation, Jesus always does and always will do the right thing. So even at the end of days, when we bear witness to his final victory, we will see, know, believe, and hail him as righteous. And you know, if you've ever suffered or been oppressed, if you've ever been led captive like Isaiah's original audience would have been, mighty Jesus the victor is very good news. Am I right? It's only the privileged elite who look down their nose at warrior Jesus. 
very uncivilized. But the needy, the oppressed, the broken, they look at Jesus the victor and they say, that sounds good to me. But if you have doubt, you're not the only one. Look at verse 4, first part of it. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. So even the original audience hears this great proclamation of the salvation that's coming for them in the form of Cyrus of Persia. And they go, I don't know. Doesn't look to me like all my work has amounted to much. So if you have doubts, I want to remind you this morning that you're not the first one to do so, nor will you ever be the last. The right response to doubt is not to beat yourself up over it, not to feel guilty about it, but to take it to Jesus like the father with the epileptic child in Mark chapter 9 and ask mighty Jesus to help you with your unbelief. Remember the father of the epileptic child? He's asking Jesus for help. And Jesus says, if you but believe, he'll be healed. And he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That's an honest person. I really relate to that guy. Most of the time, that's what my faith feels like. Straight up. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. So be honest with Jesus about that while knowing that your recompense is with God and that you can trust his word. Look at verses 5 through 7. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Again here, there's more good news. Verse 5, look at the good news. God made you. You know what that means? You're good. You're good. Okay, so don't let any condemnation come your way this week. God made you, so you're good. And further than that, he made you to be his servant. So now you know what you're supposed to do with your life. Isn't that a relief? You're like, whew, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. You're supposed to grow up to be his servant. Using the gifts he's given you to bring him glory to find your joy within them, if you have a family, to provide for them so they can grow up to love all things Jesus and all things church so that as they receive their joy from his goodness, they can see that goodness spread to the city around them and to our region. But that's why you're here. God made you so you're good and he built you to be his servant, which is what you're supposed to do with your life. This is very good news. Further in verse 5, we see that Jesus is a returner and a restorer. He fixes brokenness. He makes old things new. Jesus is like a thrift shop bargain hunter. You seen these people? They go into thrift shops that look like they're filled with junk, and they find these treasures, these beautiful pieces, and they restore them, and they put them in a place of honor. This is what Jesus does with you, and not just with you. This is what Jesus does with all those who are broken, who come to him and ask for help. He's a junkyard handyman. You've seen these shows? They go into junkyards. They find these cars worth nothing. They bring them in. They spend a few dollars. They spend their talent, their energy, their time, and they turn these pieces of junk, these relics, into things of beauty. This is what Jesus does. He's a house flipper. You've seen these people? They go into these houses. They buy the worst house on the street. And with love and talent and hard work, they turn that house into a home. This is what Jesus does. 
And as you are in him, very importantly, this is your function in society. Hear me, it's a very important point. As you are in Jesus, okay, if you're in Jesus, you're meant to do what Jesus does. So if Jesus is the restorer of all things, you, as you are in him, are meant to be in the restoration business also. Hear me, very important nuanced point here. Your job is not to make things moral, godly, or holy. Whose job is that? It's God's job. Right? Theologically, we know this is true. Only God is holy. He makes things holy. Okay, He is making us holy as He leads us to walk in Him by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. He helps us in our sinfulness to become more and more like Jesus. As we walk in repentance and we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. But it's his job to make things good. It's his job to make things moral. It's his job to make things holy. And how much time do Christians spend trying to make things moral, good, and holy in the world around them? It usually backfires and usually annoys people. Am I right? Let's not be those annoying Christians. Instead, our job is to fix broken things and tell people who think they're junk how valuable they truly are. You take that one all the way to the bank. That, that's your job. That's your job. Look at verse 6. It's too light a thing, by the way, that you should be my servant to raise up just the tribes of Jacob and to bring just back the preserved of Israel. I added the justs. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Yes, I'm going to quote to you Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Neither do they light a lamp and put her under a bowl, but they put it on its stand that it may give light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before the world that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in. There's practical Christianity writ large. I'm telling you, man, it's nonstop good news all day today. Go verse eighteen through eight, verse eight through thirteen. Thus says the Lord: In the time of favor, I have answered you; in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, "Come out." To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights; shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst; neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the lands of Sinai. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion upon his afflicted. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of Jesus, I have helped you. Yes, that is the word literally in the original text for salvation. Powerful. In a day of Jesus, I have helped you. Friends, may I remind you, we are living in the days of Jesus. Okay, we're living in the days of Jesus. This is the era of the church. And last time I checked, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you were the body of Christ and members individually. So I figure we ought to start acting a whole lot more Jesus-ish around these parts. 
So what does that look like? Well, let me borrow heavily and paraphrase it from verses 8 through 13. If we're going to look a little more Jesus-ish, it's time for less discrimination, more favor. Less questioning, more answering. Less condemning, more saving. Less harming, more helping. Less keeping to yourself, more being given away by God for good. Less insecurity, more establishing. Less hoarding, more sharing. Restoration, not desolation. Freedom, not imprisonment. Light rather than darkness. Fullness rather than hunger. No hunger or thirst. No more being scorched or stricken. For he who has pity on them will literally drive them. He's in the driver's seat. And where is he taking you? Besides springs of living water, he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and these from the north and these from the west and these from the land of Sinai. Sinai, of course, was south of Israel. He's saying north, east, south, west. Everybody gets to get on the bus with King Jesus. And he's driving right to the streams of living water. And when he gets out, he's, when he gets there, he's going to open the doors and say, hop out and take a swim. Hey, this is the message you proclaim to your friends, your peers, your neighbors, the people of the city of Guelph. Not be good, be moral, do right. But God loves you. And there is a better way. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Only those who have never known pain have a hard time rejoicing in the presence of the living God. Come to the water. All who are thirsty, come and drink. Hey, but if you're not thirsty, that song means nothing to you. But if you spend your life parched for the things of God, hungry for his presence, deeply aware that regardless of your social economic status, when faced with the God of the universe, you are absolutely wretched and hopeless if left to your own devices. You look to the cross and you're aware of your sin and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I just don't feel that way right now, Todd. Look, if that's you, that's totally okay. You're not the only one. Okay, even the original audience has heard all this glory, and then verse 14 they say, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. They say, what are you talking about, Isaiah? We are slaves in Babylon. God has forgotten us. Keep preaching, preacher, but you're talking nonsense. To that we say this, weeping may last for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. Look at verses 15 through 21 and receive it. This is for you today. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see they all gather, they come to you As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, "Um, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From whence have these come? It's too good to be true. I will not forget you, saith the Lord in verse 15. 
Sear that one in your memory this week. I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, saith the Lord in verse 16. His nail-scarred hands. Need I remind you of what they did to Jesus, God the Son made flesh, as they hung him on that cross between two thieves to suffer and die in your place for your sin. How did they hang him there? With nails through his wrists and nails through his feet, one stacked on top of the other. And they would do that on the crossbar before they dropped it into the ground so that they would nail him in and then they would raise the cross up and there would be a hole in the ground and it would drop into the ground, thunk, and as it hit, because he's nailed to the cross, all his joints would dislocate at once. So thunk, and all his joints come out. Okay? And there's Jesus. And it's just awesome to me that post-resurrection, he arranges to keep the scars in his wrists and in his feet. So then when he shows up to his disciples and he faced some of their doubts, he says, it's me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. And they look at him and they say, oh, Jesus. Now, let me remind you of a very important point. This is post-resurrection Jesus. This is pre-ascension Jesus who ascends bodily to the Father's right hand where he sits down in glory from whence he'll come again in victory to judge the living and the dead. So the hand in which he holds the rod of iron with which to rule the nations has that scar in it. And when he lays up his hand upon you when you arrive in glory someday and he looks you in the eye with love and says, well done, welcome home, those hands are going to be the same nail-scarred hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are always before me. You know why this is amazing? Not because you're a Babylonian exile from Jerusalem looking forward to the rebuilding of Zion, but because you're a Guelphite sojourner from the new Jerusalem looking forward to the day when you will go home to see the house that Jesus the builder is working on for you right now. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, would I have told you? If you weren't here for invocation, you missed that. That was the invocation this morning. Jesus, the home builder, is building your home in Zion. His walls are always before him. Lift up your eyes and see. Shift your perspective. Change your mindset from worrying about your home here on earth to dwelling on the fact that you have a home in Zion that Jesus himself built. If you adopt that one perspective, it will radically change your life. Lift up your eyes and see. This is what God's doing here. He's turning everything on its head. The things that used to oppress you, this is glorious. This is poetry. You're going to wear them like jewelry. Think on that. If this is true, if these promises were not just for the Jews of Babylon, but in Christ they're for you, then one day in glory, everything that used to oppress you, you will wear as jewelry, which means you walk into the house Jesus built for you, and there's a jewelry box, and the jewelry is familiar to you because you realize that it comes from the pain that you experienced here in the shadow lands. And when you go to the wedding supper of the Lamb and you want to dress up, that's the jewelry you put on. The jewelry made into precious jewels because of Jesus' goodness. The pain of your past redeemed and turned into something beautiful. The desolate, wrecked places of your life are not going to have enough room to contain all the new life that's coming your way in Jesus. I mean, it's too much. Is it not too much to take? It's too much to take. Look at verses 20 through 21 as I close. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, 
Um, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From whence have these come? A barren woman suddenly pregnant. Receive it. That's your destiny. In Jesus, you're going to wake up tomorrow nine months pregnant. <laughs> Hooray. 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 This is especially beautiful if you never had kids or couldn't have kids. Now take that pain and make that the pain that is common to everyone regardless of their like circumstances. This is beautiful for you if you suffered pain and you wake up one day and your pain has been turned into a necklace. You're like, I'm going to put this on real quick. And you're going to look at your big fat belly and you're going to say to your husband, Honey, we're going to need more room. Because God is turning everything on its head. Your oppressors will become your kids' babysitters. Those who violated you will become your bootlickers. How lovely are the feet of those who bring good news because God's enemies have been cleaning them with their tongues. You're like, oh, Todd. It's a little intense. Only if you've never been the oppressed. Only if you've never been the broken. Only if you've never been the forsaken. Only if you've never been the forgotten. Preach this in Africa. You know what they do? Ooh! 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 Right? Receive it. That's what they do in Lebanon. They go, Ooh! Ooh! Why? Why? Because he's given them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Mm, it's the best news they've ever heard in all their life. I told you I want to be quiet. I'm sorry. I can't preach this quiet. It's impossible. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Worship team, you can run to the stage. But can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? They are still doubting even at this point in the sermon, which is why we'll read to them verses 25 through 26 in closing. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh will know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. I have never heard better news than the fact that God will contend with those who contend with me. I don't know about you, but I have suffered. I don't know about you, but I have been betrayed. I don't know about you, but I have lost. I don't know about you, but I have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. So when you tell me that my Savior's going to stand up one day, mm, fight the powers of evil and triumph over them once and for all. I'll tell you what, I'm going to act in the single. I'm going to act like a rock, and I'm going to give him praise. Mm, this is the best news I ever heard. Why? Because only God's enemies will become blood-drunk cannibals. But you, you get to put an extension on your house. Because you're going to need more room. <laughs>